Good morning, Rock Harbor. It's good to see you. You can be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you in Jesus' name this morning, and we thank you for this beautiful day that you have given us. What a wonderful opportunity it is, Lord, to be able to come before you, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, and to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would indeed give us ears to hear all that you want to say to us and eyes to see all that you want to reveal to us. And help us in all that we do to magnify and glorify your name and to strengthen and encourage your church. We ask these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen. I think all of us can understand or at least know rudimentary the the importance of spiritual growth in our lives. Uh, That we undertake certain things like Bible study, fellowship, going to church, personal devotions, Bible reading, and these things, and recognize their importance in terms of growing us spiritually, developing a deeper relationship with God, and continuing to develop us as God reveals himself to us on our Christian path. But one of the things that I think is often, I don't want to say ignored, but at the very least, it's not given its just due, and that is the idea of service. The importance of service when it comes to just growing and developing in our relationship with God and in maturity. About seven months after I came to believe in Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior, I began to attend a church in West Los Angeles called The Hiding Place. Sadly, it's no longer there, but at the time, it was just just an amazing place, especially for a new Christian to grow. And so I began to attend this church. It's a church in which I would be mentored, in which I would be developed, in which I would develop many lifelong relationships and friendships with people that I still talk to on a regular basis. And as I am growing and developing in this church, I began to notice just, you know, that I needed to be doing something more. I can't necessarily explain it to you. There was just something inside of me that recognized, you know what, I I need to be going a little bit deeper. Couldn't necessarily put my finger on it. But what was interesting was this, is that every single Sunday during the announcement period, the leader of the children's ministry... She was a staff member of the church. She would come up and just put a plea out for help. Every single week. I mean, she'd get up there and she'd be like, we need help in the children's ministry. And the thing is, this is a church of almost 1,000 people. All right? It's almost 1,000 people, but they needed help in the children's ministry. Well, at first, you know, it's like, went right over my head. But as I started to recognize that I needed to get more involved in church, and, and one of my uh, friends who eventually would become a mentor to me said, you know what, um, maybe what you need to do is just start serving somewhere in the church. I thought, yeah, that sounds good. I think that's a good idea. What happened was that every Sunday as I'd sit there during the announcement period, she would get up there and she'd plead for help in the children's ministry. I started to feel a conviction in my heart that this is what I needed to do. But, I mean, I'm like, no, come on. Children's ministry? That's not my wheelhouse. 
I have absolutely no idea what I'd be doing. <clears throat> it got so bad that I started to get to church late just to miss the announcement period so that the conviction wouldn't be so strong. Well, that didn't last very long because at some point I relented and after church on a Sunday morning, I went up to her and I said, sign me up, I'll do it. She's like, oh my, that's great, you know, it's just, and so I went through the whole process of becoming, you know, a, a fledgling member of the children's ministry. I'm not kidding when I say that my first Sunday, it was my turn to teach the kids. I was more nervous than almost any other time in my life. But it was probably one of my fondest memories of serving in, the, in my early years in the church. I came to treasure those kids so much. They were so precious. And I'm not kidding when I say that they probably taught me more than I ever taught them. And one of the things they taught me was the importance of service and sacrifice in the life of the church and the importance of service and sacrifice in our spiritual growth. If you're feeling like maybe you've plateaued in your spiritual growth and you're wondering, how can I grow and develop more in my relationship with God? If you haven't considered service, then I want this morning's sermon to be kind of a call for you to consider that. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 20 through 28. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20, we're going to read through verse 28. Let's read this together. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To kind of set us up on what we're dealing with here, what's important to note is that Jesus, the apostles, and all of those following them are making their way to Jerusalem. They're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover when Jesus is basically going to be revealed as the Christ will he be crucified, buried, and on the third day rise. And so as he's making their way there, James and John are thinking that they want to kind of get a jump on things. But what is it they want to get a jump on? It's a good question because it kind of sets us up for what we need to understand regarding understanding this passage better. 
You see, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus reveals to the apostles their role in his messianic kingdom. And when we understand what Jesus is saying here, then it kind of gives us some context of why James and John would ask for what they asked. But let's read Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 through 29. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You see, what was happening here is that the apostles, they were starting to grumble. They were starting to say, we've left everything to follow after you. And Jesus tells them, saying, look, you have a role in my coming kingdom, a rather important role. And not only that, but all of those who've left all these worldly things for my sake will receive that and even more in the coming kingdom. And so in line with this revelation that Jesus gives to his apostles and this promise that he gives, it helps us to understand why James and John, the sons of Zebedee, want to kind of get a jump on their apostolic brothers. You see, what's happening is this, is that Jesus has told them, hey, you're going to have this important role to play in the coming messianic kingdom. So maybe you can just see James and John saying, hey, you know what? He said we're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe we need to like get on the jump if we're going to have some prominence in this. And so what James and John try and do is they try and gain some position and prominence over their apostolic brothers. And not only do they want to gain prominence, but they ask their mom to help them out. All right? I mean, they're probably thinking this. Jesus can say no to us, but there's no way he's saying no to our mom. Which, of course, they were wrong. And so they enlist the help of their mom, and they say, hey, Jesus, come here. Can we talk to you for a minute? And he's like, what do you want? And, of course, the mom speaks up, and she says, well, when you come into your kingdom, in other words, that kingdom that he talked about in Matthew chapter 19, when you come into your kingdom, grant that my sons would sit at your right and your left. Now, you understand that, that in the kingdom, the king sits on the throne, but the one at his right would be his hand, the hand of the king. He would be, in essence, the second most important person in the kingdom. And then at the left, it's not as prominent as the right, but it's still an important position in the kingdom. These are positions of authority, prominence, and power. You understand? And so they want to gain some prominence and power over their brothers. You see, this is the request that they are making. But there's a reality they're going to have to face. But in the request, they want prominence and power. And so Jesus says to them, look, you guys really don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And what do you think he's referring to in the cup? In other words, can you suffer what I am going to suffer? Can you endure what I'm going to endure? Oh yeah, we can. you got to love that. They have no clue. They really don't. And Jesus doesn't inform them. You will drink from the cup I'm going to drink. In other words, you will suffer for my name. But to grant these places, that's already, no, that, that's, that's not for me to give. That's already been planned out. And, and so you, you see here, it's clear that not only 
James and John, but all the apostles, they clearly misunderstand Jesus' mission and calling. They clearly misunderstand, you know, what lies before them. You see, they don't recognize the importance, not only of service and sacrifice, but having a servant mindset. They're focused on what? They're focused on power, position, prominence. That's what they're focused on. And you see, it's because they, they've, they, they get caught up in their ambition and expectations. Now, before we're too hard on the apostles, because it's easy to look at these guys and say, man, I don't know what these, th these guys just don't get it, because this is not the first time the apostles have done this. We've seen the apostles argue and grind over who has authority, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, there's a, a time before this when the apostles are arguing about who the greatest in the kingdom is. And later they get to where they're going and Jesus asks them, what is it you guys were arguing about on the road back there? He knows, but he wants to hear them. I can just see the apostles going like this. Well, you know, we were talking and stuff. No, what were you arguing about? Well, you know, and then they, of course they tell him. You know, who's going to have a position of, you know, all this stuff? And, and Jesus says, look, you guys, i got to tell you something. And, and he kind of, he, he gets, remember, he gets a child and sets it in the midst and says, you understand the greatest in the kingdom. Here's your illustration right here. But they don't get it. You see, they are focused so much on their own ambitions and their own expectations of Jesus that they just simply don't see the forest for the trees. They don't recognize what is coming. And so Jesus has to remind them of a few things. And in the process, he reminds us of a few things as well. First, Jesus has to remind them that this is not about their glory, but it's about God's glory. It's not about their glory. It's about God's glory. You know, everything we do about serving, about our faith, it's not about our own glory. It's about God's glory. The focus is always to be God. It's always to be about what is it, does this bring glory to God? In whatever we do, whatever we say, in whatever we engage in, we should ask ourselves a very simple question. Does this glorify God? You know, it's not always a, a, an easy thing to deal with because there can be times, now, Having lived in Los Angeles for a really long time and driving the freeways, all right, if any of you have had that wonderful experience of being in regular traffic jams, it's very easy. That, if there was anything that ever pushed my buttons, it was sitting in a car in a traffic jam in typical LA. I'm like, oh, God, this drives me nuts. And you just come to this place where people begin to just they don't act right. I'm just going to leave it at that. And, and there, I literally had to sit there and think, am I actions glorifying God or are they just or actually, actually defaming his name? Wh whose glory are we seeking? Our own or God's? And this is a question the apostles had to be asked and they had to ask of themselves. The second thing that Jesus had to remind them 
was not only was it not about their glory, but God's glory, but they needed to be more focused on eternal matters and less focused on temporal ones. They needed to be more focused on eternal matters and less focused on temporal ones. You see, they are so focused on their own power and ambition and everything else that they are not thinking of eternal matters. Look, when we consider the scope of life, I want you to think about eternity for a minute. All right? it's, it's hard to visualize. It's in many ways kind of an academic exercise because we have a hard thing to compare it to. But if a person lives to be 100 years old, that's a long time, right? 100 years, you know, like, God bless them. They made it to 100. 100 years is nothing in the scope of eternity. It's absolutely nothing. It's not even, James even said, he said, your life is like a vapor. It appears for just but a brief moment and then disappears. The time that we spend on this earth, be it 70, 80, 90, 100 years, the question isn't really about the years we spend. How do we spend those years? That's the question. Many of us are focused on having more years. I'm more focused on packing as much into those years as I can. And, the, and because I recognize eternity is at stake here. It's eternity. The disciples were not focused on eternal. They weren't focused on eternal matters. They were focused on temporal ones, temporal power. And Jesus is trying to get them focused on eternity. If there's one individual that has ever lived that has had more impact on human history than any other individual, it's Jesus Christ. And he died at 33. He lives today, resurrected. But here on earth, he died at 33. And he had more impact than any other human ever to have existed. We need to be focused more on eternal matters and less on temporal ones. Third, Jesus reminds them that they need to keep a God's kingdom perspective. Now, this is related to number two in the sense that two is the focus of eternity. Two, or number three, keeping a God kingdom perspective is really about what we do with the time that we're here. Because the time that we're here is important. What I don't want to... Uh, try and communicate is that eternity is the only thing that matters and that the time we spend here doesn't matter at all because that's not the case. The time we spend here does matter. Our lives here do matter. But in our lives here, are we focused on God's kingdom or our own kingdom? It's an important question because the disciples here are kind of focused on their own kingdom. What they're trying to do is they're trying to carve out a little bit of space just for themselves. I'm going to tell you something. As a pastor who's been in ministry for, at least pastoral ministry, for 25 years, I've been involved with a number of ministry, a number of churches, and it pains me to say that I've seen a number of ministers and pastors and so forth who have sought to kind of carve out their own little kingdom in the big kingdom. Do you understand? Treating their ministry almost like it was like a little fiefdom or something like that. And in the process, begin to lose sight of the larger picture of God's kingdom and more focused just on their little thing. We can't afford to do that. We can't afford it all. The church really can't afford to be so inwardly focused on itself that it ignores the larger picture of what God's doing in the world around us. We need to be focused on God's kingdom. What is God doing? How does God want to impact the world 
for Christ. And so Jesus reminds them, first, that it's not about their glory, but God's glory. Second, to focus more on eternal matters and less on temporal ones. Third, to keep God's kingdom perspective. But also, he reminds them that leadership means service and sacrifice. Leadership means service and sacrifice. You see, the apostles, James and John, came to Jesus and they made this request. They want prominence. They want position. They want power. And now Jesus needs to give them the reality. The reality. What's the reality? The reality ultimately is service and sacrifice. That's the reality. The request of the apostles was prominence and position and power. The reality is service and sacrifice. Because what is Jesus' response to them? We see here that the whole thing begins to fall apart when the other apostles recognize what James and John are trying to do. So James and John, they go up to Jesus, they bring him aside, they bring their mom, and Jesus kind of, conf- he doesn't confront them, but he says to them, you guys don't know what you're asking, but you're going to drink from the cup I'm going to drink, but to grant these positions, it's not for me to give. In other words, he says no, even to James's mom. <laughs> Sorry. And I can just see it now that the other apostles are probably standing back there going, what's going on? So James and John, they pull Jesus aside. James's mom, uh, that their mother goes with them, and I can just see them going, what's going on over there? And so they get a little closer, and they get a wind of what's happening there. And they say, what? Wait a minute! And they become indignant. I want you to understand this word indignant is a very strong term, all right? They're not just angry. They're not just upset. They are mad. As a matter of fact, they're ready to come to blows with their brothers. That's how angry they are. Now just think for a minute. Just picture this scene. Jesus is standing there. James and John are asking. Jesus tells them. He gives them the the bad news, you know. The good news, but you know, it's the bad news for them, but the good news for the kingdom. And, And the rest of the apostles get wind of what's going on, and they get into an argument. And can you just see it now? They're ready to come to blows with each other. Can you just see Jesus standing back there looking at all this? Shaking his head, maybe face palm, going, you guys. And he says, okay, wait, stop. Just stop. Come here. Come here. I need to talk to you. And what does he say to them? He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, look, you guys, you know how the rulers of the Gentiles, how people in the world, this is how they lead. This is what they do. You know that they, they are hungry for power, and they take that power, and they exercise that power over others. And those that they exercise power over, they, they have power over others. And you see how it kind of rolls downhill like this. But what Jesus does is he turns it upside down. He says, this is how the world works. The world works in this way from this top-down perspective where all these people, they exercise authority and power over others, but this is not how it is to be with you. And what he takes, this whole notion of how the world deals with power, and he takes it and he flips it right upside down. And he says, no, this is how you are to operate. This is how the world operates. This is not how you are to operate. This is how you are to operate. This is how it works in God's kingdom. How does it work? 
Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now look, what Jesus is not doing is he's not dismissing the importance of leadership here. He's not. As a matter of fact, in an ironic sense, he's actually strengthening the core of their leadership. He's teaching them to be leaders. I mean, after all, what are these apostles going to be after Jesus ascends? They are going to become the leaders of the early church. They are going to become responsible for leading that fledgling early church and taking this message out into Judea, the surrounding regions, and all the world. That's what he's training them to do. But what he's trying to teach them in the process is, what does real leadership look like? The question, what Jesus is not doing is he's not dismissing leadership. What he's doing is he's reminding us of the importance of motives in leadership. Motives matter. Our heart matters. Look, when it comes to God's kingdom, our heart always makes a difference. Always. It's motives that matter. <clears throat> you know, I've some of you have heard me tell this story before, so if you've heard me, just indulge me. Um, but it's, it's always been a stark reminder of the importance of motives in leadership and the reminder that, you know, there's nothing in the church, there's nothing beneath us. Um, some years ago, I, when I was an assistant pastor, I went to a Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference. All right, went to Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference there in Big Calvary in Costa Mesa. And I think at the time, uh, I think it was Raul Reese, Pastor Raul Reese was speaking. It may have been one of the others, but I think it was Raul Reese. He was telling this story about the early days of Calvary Chapel, right after Big Calvary had been built. You know, they had the tent, and then they built the new building. And so right after they had moved into the new building, um, they were doing a conference. And one of the pastors was up there speaking, and he's coming to the end of his, his session, and Pastor Chuck was to come up next. And so all the pastors are going, where's, where's Chuck? He's up next. And nobody can find him. And, you know, so you got Raul Reese, Greg Laurie, Mike McIntosh, you know, all these early pastor, you know, Calvary Chapel pastors running around looking for Pastor Chuck. Well, finally, one of them gets the idea to look into the bathroom. And there in the bathroom is Pastor Chuck with his sleeves rolled up with a plunger going at the toilet. He's like, Pastor Chuck, what are you doing? You're up next. And he's like, somebody's got to do it. And they said, well, you know, just here, I'll take over. You go. You're next. You're, it's your turn to, to speak and close this thing out. And I remember sitting there as Wall, uh, Pastor Rawls telling that story, and I remember just feeling in my heart this strong sense of God speaking to me and just saying, Darren, there is nothing beneath you as a pastor. Nothing. If you've got to plunge a toilet, then you plunge a toilet. If you've got to sweep a floor, then you sweep a floor. It doesn't really matter. You are called to serve. And you need to have a servant's heart. And so there is nothing beyond you. There is nothing past you. There is nothing that you are not called to do in order to serve the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is not doing, he's not in any way dismissing the importance of leadership. Rather, what he is doing is confronting the motives of leadership. What are our motives? Look, the simple truth of the matter is, 
There is a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus. It means giving up notions of power and prestige, especially as the world understands it, and giving up these notions of power and prestige for a higher purpose, one that glorifies God and one that builds up his church. That's what's important. Does this glorify God? Does it build up his church? You know, Jesus left us with a very important picture of what this looks like. An extremely important picture. In John chapter 13, Jesus gives us, I think, the ultimate picture of what it means to serve. You remember the, the setting. In John chapter 13, what's happening there is that <clears throat> they're having the, uh, the Last Supper. It's, it's basically the, the Passover Supper, Passover Seder. And in the midst of the Passover Supper, Jesus leaves his position at the head of the table. He strips down to his inner garment and wraps a towel around his waist. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Remember this? Now, washing people's feet was a common practice in the first century because of the dusty roads and everything else, but it was always the role of a servant. When you would go into a house, they would welcome you to the house, and part of the hospitality is that the servant would come, remove your sandals, and wash your feet. And in this case, Jesus begins to wash their feet. And you know the story, Peter protests. Lord, you're never, this is beneath you, is essentially what Peter is saying. This is beneath you. You'll never wash my feet. To which Jesus replies, you know, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. Well, well then, wash all of me. Peter, a person who has had a bath does not need to be bathed again. Just let me do this for now. It's almost like Jesus saying, Peter, will you be quiet and let me do this? <laughs> and after he finishes washing their feet, <clears throat> I, you have to imagine, their rabbi, the one they believe sent from God, has just washed their feet. And what does he say to them when he is done? This is where we pick up. John chapter 13 and verse 12, it says, When he, Jesus, had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In other words, what Jesus is saying, look, no servant is greater than his master. If I, your master, am willing to wash your feet, then there is nothing beneath you. You should be willing to wash others' feet. In other words, you should be willing to serve in whatever capacity necessary in order to glorify God and build up his church. There is nothing beneath you or me or anyone. It's what Jesus is communicating there. What a wonderful picture that is of what it means to truly serve. And so going back to Matthew chapter 20, <clears throat> Jesus gives us his mission statement. If you want Jesus' mission statement in a, in a sentence, it's really Matthew 20, 28. 
He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so what do we see here in this? What we see is this, is that the reality of service and sacrifice means that sacrifice is just part of the picture. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is a willingness to give up something we value to achieve something greater. Sacrifice, a willingness to give up something we value to achieve something greater. That we're willing to sacrifice something that we value to achieve a much greater purpose. I don't think there's a parent in here that doesn't understand what this means. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. You know, I, I can remember growing up, um, I grew up, I grew up in, you know, my, my main formative years of growing up were in Simi Valley. It was, you know, my, my mom was a nurse, my dad was a grocer, uh, worked in the grocery uh, business, and, and it was, I'm going to tell you something right now. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. We were just straight up middle class. And I often complained about not having more because I wanted, I wanted you know, the good stuff. You know, I, I wanted the best clothes, you know, OP shorts. You know, at that time, it's OP and Lightning Bolt and all this other surf clothes and stuff like that. I want this. And my mom's like, no, no, we don't have money for that. She would buy me Vans shoes. Um, that would be the one splurge to which I still wear to this day. Um, but, you know, looking growing up, my parents just drove my dad had a Volkswagen Bug my whole life. And he would work on it all the time. Just this old Volkswagen Bug. He drove that thing all the time. I'd be like, Dad, why don't you get a new car? And he wouldn't say anything, but I know what he, now I know what he'd say, because I'm paying for you. <laughs> sacrifice. I look back on it now, and I see the sacrifices my parents made so that we could have a roof over our heads and food on the table and clothes on our back. This is what life in the kingdom means. In it, there is an element of sacrifice. It's a willingness to give up something we value to achieve something greater. Second, there's suffering. Suffering is the willingness to pay the price to achieve our calling and purpose. Now, when I say suffering, I, I mean, <clears throat> there are going to be times when we suffer for our faith. That There are people in this world, there are Christians in this world right now who are suffering for their belief in Jesus Christ. In China in Russia, in Middle East, people have put their faith in Christ and they are truly suffering for that faith. But suffering can even be this idea that, that no, notion or idea that we are willing to pay the price to achieve our calling and purpose. Paul understands what it means to suffer. Every parent, once again, knows the meaning of suffering. But we do it. And we do it willingly. Why? Because we want to achieve our calling and purpose that God has placed upon our lives. Third, we see Jesus reveal the idea of service. Service is the willingness to put others' needs ahead of our own. It's the willingness to put others' needs ahead of our own. And, you know, these three things, service, suffering, and sacrifice, one of the most important characteristics in achieving these things in our lives is the characteristic of humility. It's humility. I often call true humility the, the forgotten characteristic or the forgotten quality. What is humility? Humility is, in many ways, it's the recognition, uh, it's the willingness and recognition of who we really are in light of God and the willingness to live that way. 
Today's passage really invites us what it, to reflect on what it means to be uh, a Christian, to follow after Jesus. And the key element that helps us in that is humility. Humility. I want to read in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to end, we'll end here today. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, Paul writes this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but, to, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, many people, when they look at this passage, they, they refer to it as a proof text for Jesus' deity. But do you know, Paul didn't write this as a proof text for Jesus' deity. As a matter of fact, the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, is already assumed in this text. It's because Jesus is God that gives this, this text more power. And this is really a proof text for humility. That's what this is really about. It's about humility. Paul writes this as the ultimate example of humility. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He's saying, look, this is what service looks like in the kingdom of God. And if you want the perfect example of what this is, you need to look no further than Messiah Jesus. Because Messiah Jesus, who in very nature God, and yet was willing to leave the glory of heaven to come to earth and be found in likeness of man. In other words, to take on flesh and dwell among us. And not just dwell among us, but to die for our sins. And not just die for our sins, but to die on the cross for our sins. That's a picture of humility. That Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of his people. Humility is going to be that key component when it comes to service. The willingness to just see others. Humility is so important here because what does it do? It emphasizes a trust in God. It considers others first. And it's not concerned with power, prestige, or position. But rather, it is focused simply on glorifying God and building up his church. So how can we serve? How can you grow in your faith? If you want to grow even deeper in your faith, I encourage you to find some place to serve and to serve with a glad heart and to glorify God and build up his church. Amen? All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so very much for this opportunity to hear your word. I'm grateful, Lord. I pray that you would just indeed continue to move in our hearts in such a way that we would be a people who seek to serve you and to serve one another. I pray, Lord, that we would not in any way dismiss or take lightly the example that you have left us. I pray, Lord, that we would take it to heart. And help us, Lord, in all our ways to just 
be obedient unto you and to, after hearing your word, put it into action so that you may be glorified, so that your church may be encouraged and strengthened. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Let's all stand.